Good morning, everyone. Kevin here, Sky Watcher. Welcome to the What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Sky Watcher USA YouTube channel. Uh, if you've never joined us before, welcome back. Happy Friday. Um, if you have joined us before, thanks for being here. And uh, like I said, we do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific. Each episode is different. We cover a different topic each week. And if you do miss these and you want to get back and um, go back and watch any of them, you can always head back to the library here and go back and watch any episode that you may have missed. Or if there's some content that you're missing, um, you can go back and check those out at any time. All these are recorded after the live episode has aired. So... This week is actually a topic that was emailed to us as a request uh, a couple months ago. Um, and if you do have a request for an episode, you can uh, definitely send that in to us at info at skywatchusa.com. We're always open to different ideas for webcast episodes. We do plan these out usually quarters um, for the year. So if you have an idea, um, we'll try to jot that down. But... It might be a few months before that idea is put into the queue. So uh, if you do write in, don't be upset that we didn't do it like the next week um, because it does take some planning for us to build the episodes and get the content ready and all that fun stuff. Uh, but if you have an idea for an episode, especially because this is uh, we're working on the final quarter of the year at this point, uh, we're getting ideas for next year. So if you have anything that you want us to cover uh, for the following or the upcoming year, Please send those in. We'll be uh, love to check out your ideas on what we can uh, cover uh, for you guys. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about live stacking, uh, particularly for outreach efforts, but you could also do it for observing on your own. Uh, this is something that has it's been popular for a while, but uh, thanks to software and technology and all that fun stuff. Um, it's gotten a lot easier to do that uh, nowadays. So, you know, like I said, we're going to be talking about live stacking today. And sometimes I get questions about what is it? So I'm going to kind of break this down um, a little bit. So live stacking. Uh, that would basically be live imaging. Um, you could also hear, you know, electronic assisted astronomy or EAA is how I've seen it abbreviated on some of the form websites. Um, honestly, you can call it whatever you want. Uh, but basically it's live astrophotography for the purpose of observing or sharing it with others. You're not really out there to take, you know, pretty pictures per se uh, when you're doing something like this. It's more of just being able to see faint targets that would possibly be difficult uh, visually, no matter what telescope you're using. Um, and that can be a really beneficial thing, uh, especially, you know, if you want to reach a large group of people or if you're just doing it in the backyard with, you know, yourself or your friends and family. Um, I have friends whose eyesight isn't that great. Um, so doing... Uh, Live stacking uh, allows them to see these faint objects. Um, another big thing, advantage of uh, live stacking or, you know, EAA work is that uh, thanks to the cameras, you're actually able to see things in color or you're just able to see faint targets that normally you would need an exponentially large telescope to see or you'd have to really travel the dark sky sites, which can be difficult uh 
we're able to do all the time. So it just kind of opens up the horizons a little. Um, and again, either for yourself or to share with others is is really what it's all about. And that's kind of what we're going to be covering today. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing. Um, I'm going to be talking about this from my experience. Uh, this is something that I've done, especially over the last year with the pandemic. It's kind of been an outlet for doing outreach when I can't. And there's been other organizations that I've seen go down this route as well. So I'm just going to be talking from my experience and how I've done it myself. And hopefully, you know, you can roll with that any way you like. Um, so applications. Um, first off is just general outreach. Uh, basically, it's excellent for large groups of people. or And this allows you to show multiple people uh, something at once. You know, I, I love doing outreach events. I love being around people and sharing astronomy with others. And for years, I've done that with an eyepiece where you just have lines of people waiting to look through the telescope, which is great. I still love doing that. Um, but you'll find out, especially when you go to some of these bigger events and there's multiple telescopes out there after a while, there's only so many targets, especially when you're in a light polluted location, there's only so many objects you can show at a school. You know, if you're out there in summer, you know, you've probably got one telescope on the ring nebula, one on M13, uh, maybe one on M3, um, you know the dumbbell nebula the highlight stuff but after a while especially if you don't have any planets or the moon up or anything like that um you kind of i wouldn't say run out of objects be, but objects can become more difficult to see because you're in a light polluted location and of course we would all love to show everyone the veil nebula or the crescent nebula or the trifid or you know, the lagoon you could probably see in town but the lagoon in detail or M16, or in the wintertime, the Horsehead Nebula. Everyone loves the Horsehead Nebula, but I have experienced astronomy friends who have never seen the Horsehead Nebula visually. So it's, it gives you the ability to check out those challenge objects uh, really easily thanks to the sensitivity of the camera and filters. Um, another big advantage is if you are using a color camera, you can display these objects in color. Obviously, the human eye is not going to be able to see the colors in the Orion Nebula uh, or the colors in the Ring Nebula. I know there's probably a few of you out there that might be able to see those shades, but the vast majority of people will not. So that's just the reality of it. Uh, Narrowband filters, one of my favorite reasons for using monochrome cameras. Um, it allows you to basically cut through the light pollution or even a full moon um, using a hydrogen alpha filter. And a camera, the Horsehead Nebula is way easier um, to go about that route. So, David, that's a really good question about planetary cameras. Uh, we'll actually talk about that. I didn't quite cover that in the presentation, but that's a good topic. I have a, uh, a section on equipment. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, another cool thing that I like to do, it depends on what software you're using, but uh, the software I use uh, captures all those images and sends that uh, to a file in the computer to where I can go back home, process everything, and then I can send just some 
basic pro not you know some a pod thing but just a basic stack of images the one nicely you know quick quickly uh edited image and then i can send a stack of those back to the uh venue that we went to and they've got all these cool pictures that we took from their parking lot or their event and they could show people or use that for future events so it's just kind of a little like hey blah blah blah, blah. um the image up on the screen this was so first off, when you're doing this type of astronomy, make sure you do this at home first. You need to work out all the kinks at home. I don't want to hear some excuse about like, oh, it's too bright at home or, oh, the weather's been bad. Of course, if the weather sucks, then don't go out and do it. But it doesn't really matter because that's the whole purpose of this type of uh, setup is it allows you to get through the light pollution. So, but setup at home mess with it at home you have a lot of stuff that's got to work right um on a setup like this so the image you see up on the screen there of the telescope and the horsehead nebula after i had spent enough time and gotten comfortable enough that i felt i could do this publicly we brought this setup out to an event in the winter time um maybe late winter because orion was setting in the west um we did this for a school out at a place a nearby lake um i didn't have a monitor yet so we actually used a 55 inch screen that the the location had on hand and hooked that up through that on the horsehead nebula with a hydrogen alpha filter and up pops this image about 30 a couple images stacked that's right off the camera it was ridiculous to have the horsehead nebula you know huge on this screen um it made a big impact. So, uh, but yeah, so it's very, very cool what you can do with some of this. Um, another big advantage to this type of uh, setup, the electronically assisted astronomy or live stacking is special needs events. And I've done a couple with this and it's become a real staple uh, to have at these events because it's easily accessible to everyone. It doesn't matter if, you're in a wheelchair or you have trouble walking or whatever the issue might be uh it makes it really easy and obtainable for everyone to enjoy it um this picture right here uh that you see on the slide there was an event that we did up in northern arizona it was for uh disabilities summer camp and a lot of the uh kids there you know had walking disabilities or they were in a wheelchair or whatever it made it really difficult to where i can't bring out a daub or a refractor and point it wherever and hopefully they can get up to the eyepiece of course there's ways around that but it gets difficult when you're trying to make sure everybody has a good time um with this so live stacking setups since you're not chasing the eyepiece position all around sky you can just have someone come up to the table, see the screen, and wow, there it is. I can see it. And it's very cool to to see. Um again, you don't need any, you know, step stools or ladders to climb up. Gets rid of that completely. But it gives everyone a chance to see. And another cool thing that I like to do um is show them how we point the telescope. So Obviously, I know a lot of people like, what do you mean you let them move the telescope? We'll freak out at that. But 
you'll find, and for those of you who've done outreach before, I think you'll find that a lot of people are very skittish around this equipment. It's expensive. They don't want to hurt it. They don't want to damage it. Definitely don't want to pay you back for it. Um, I've never had an issue with anything, you know, knock on wood, getting damaged. Um, but once it's all set up, usually you're going to find that there's a group that's more interested in it than not. Everyone seems to think it's cool, but you're generally going to find a group that's has a deeper interest in it. They're usually hanging out more around the setups than the rest of them will. Um, if I see someone who's generally interested, they want to know how it works. They want to, you know, have a better understanding of it. I'll kind of explain. It's like, here's how the telescope works. Here's what we're doing. Here's how the camera works. Um, here's how the system works as far as pointing the telescope. And then I'll ask, hey, what do you want to go check out? So, you know, let's, I want to see a galaxy. So I'll, we'll, we'll go open up the star chart and be like, okay, uh, M51 is up. That's the Whirlpool galaxy. And we'll show them how to type that into the system and hit go. All they've done on the keyboard is hit M51 and enter. Not a big deal. But for someone's eyes to light up about like, oh my God, I went and had the telescope move to this target. It's like they've become the astronomer for five minutes. And that can be a big deal and a big impact to someone because now it's making something that seems so expensive and so out of reach, especially with the equipment that we're using. You know, I've obviously right there, you're seeing a Paramount and a Spree 100. You know, that's a top dollar setup, but it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a C-Gem and a short tube 80 um, or whatever. Um, it's still an investment of money on our part, but for them to become the astronomer for five minutes, and to make it feel like uh, for one, for a few minutes, that this was something that they could do that was obtainable to them um, really can make a big deal for a lot of people. And I've seen it with kids. I'm sure anybody who's done outreach before, letting someone kind of step into your shoes and see, oh, I can do this. It's it's not just something in a book or it's not just something on some faraway mountaintop and tucked away for people not to touch. Um, if you take the time to actually share that with somebody, educate them on how the system works, how to be safe around it, how to utilize it, you'll find that people are very respectful of it most of the time. Um, but you can make a big difference by sharing that with someone especially in a group that might be special needs because obviously things might not be going to the best at that point uh we did a follow-up group um same camp about a week after this it was a cancer camp and a lot of kids with cancer it, that was a rough go but to take the time for them and to let them become the astronomer and let them know that there is a bigger picture out there besides just what's going on in their life right there can make a big deal to people. So you stepping up to go out, even with your knowledge or just a little telescope, it doesn't have to be a big fat thing out there, but you taking the time to share that with someone can make a big impact on someone, even though you don't get to see it. So there you go. So special needs groups, this type of setup is perfect for that. Um, virtual star parties. This is a big one, especially over the whole pandemic and everything. Um, I'm sure, you know, I see Mike Overcrackers here, or sorry, Mike, uh, Mike's here. 
um, in the chat. I know there's some other people that do this as well. Um, when the pandemic hit, I think a lot of us that do outreach regularly uh, were very busy. We, you know, it was springtime. Weather's generally good most of the across, at least here in the U.S. At least it's it's people are getting back. The holidays are over. People are getting back, and they're they want to get out. I know that's like prime time for weather where I'm at. A lot of events are planned around the springtime because it's still cool. It's not like hella hot yet. Um, prime time. And then the pandemic hit and shut everything down. So for you to go from major events to nothing like that, it kind of sucks. So I found virtual star parties are a really good way to continue your outreach efforts even when you can't do it in person, or maybe you want to go beyond your geographical borders. Um, so basically what virtual star parties are, are where you're basically doing your live stack, but now you're using a software to capture that and stream onto the internet. Exactly what we're doing right now as me talking to you. My software is just screen capturing whatever I have on my second monitor. It just so happens that instead of me talking to you on a, you know, PowerPoint presentation, I'm actually screenshotting my computer program that's running the telescope and streaming that out there. And you're seeing the live stack images. And this turns out to be very, very effective. And it's a very cool way to do it. I've done it for Grand Canyon. Uh, National Park, uh, helping them do the the virtual Grand Canyon Star Party the last two years because we couldn't do it in person. Uh, it's excellent for, I'm sorry, eyes itchy. Um, it's excellent for events. Um, for example, you know, lunar eclipses, good one. Solar eclipses, great. Um, the big thing at the end of last year, the conjunction, conjunction. Uh, with Jupiter and Saturn, I I did a live stream. It was kind of last minute. Um, all I did was set the telescope up and let it just watch Jupiter and Saturn. We had 1,200 people watching that thing out of nowhere. So for events that are geographically difficult or maybe not as obtainable to see, but people want to see it in good detail, live streaming those events because you've, you've made the investment, you've had the equipment, you know the know-how. People want to know about that. So, But it can be difficult if there's an eclipse going on or whatever. Maybe they can't get out there. Maybe it's not good. Maybe the weather sucks where they're at. Um, you can stream that onto uh, the internet for people to see, and people love it. Um, so it's a very cool thing to do. Um, like I said before, it has no geographical limitations. So... As someone who's done outreach and uh, large events, it's kind of difficult to get people to come out to a location, even if it's close to town, that's dark, um, or take some weird road. And, you know, we've all seen that horror movie. Yeah, just drive out there. Nothing bad will happen. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to organize an outreach event uh, and get people to come out to it, especially if you're a small program. Uh, virtual star parties, you don't have to go anywhere. You can have a telescope set up and you can just stream it and people all over the world can watch it. Now, that's not quite the same as in-person. 
know, I think we all enjoy talking and being around people for the most part. Um, but this is something, if you can't get out to do that, is a great option to do that. Uh, this has become very popular for a lot of organizations. Um, you know, my, my organization is Focus Astronomy, an outreach program that I run. It did well, but some of the bigger like observatories like Lowell Observatory and um, McDonald Observatory in Texas, they have started offering these. I don't know if they're still doing them because I think they're open to people now. But they were doing them and they had hundreds of people on these events. So for large organizations and observatories and such, this is a great way to actually share that content uh, beyond uh, your location. So it's a good offering at that point. And it's a good way of promoting your what you can do there. Encouraging people, it's like, if this is what we can do here, imagine what you can do in person. So it's a good way to advertise if you want to promote your program a little bit more for people who can't always make it to your So kind of a cool thing. So. Um, equipment. I know, I know this is what everyone wants to talk about. Uh, we all like talking about gear. Um, first off, as with anything in the world of astrophotography, the mount is the most important thing in the entire setup. If the mount's not going to do the work for you, you're going to have a heck of a time getting anything else to work. Um, honestly, any major mount uh, is going to work. Um, you just want something that's good, solid, and has good pointing. Uh, but everything's going to rely on that mount. Obviously, the picture here is a little overkill. Just a little 50 on a paramount. No no big deal. Um, AZ mounts, they do an okay job, but you're going to really need to keep that down to something fast like the, the Astron Rasas or the Hyperstars from Star Arizona. Um, because of field rotation, um, stacking, you're going to be limited on those mounts. Obviously, they're more convenient because you don't have to polar align them and balance isn't as big of a deal and stuff like that. But uh, if you're trying to use longer focal lengths or a wider variety of tubes, you're going to be limited on an AZ mount. So unless you've got something fast, um, like I said, the Rosser or a Hyperstar system, an AZ mount will do good with those. But if you're trying to do it with a refractor or something like that, unless it's like the moon or something, you're you're probably going to have a little bit of a difficult time. Um, so they're not ideal, but they do a great job for faster options. Now, equatorial mounts, my preferred method, um, offers a wider range of telescope options. Obviously, with dovetails and such, you can put all kinds of things on an equatorial mount. Um, and with a good alignment, um, and this is something that you'll have to actually get used to. When you're going out into the field and you're doing this, um, you're going to have to take a little bit more care uh, on polar aligning your mount, make sure the pointing is good um, in order for it to track correctly. Because the live stack softwares that are available do a nice job, but they're not going to make up for a crappy polar alignment. So you're going to have to get used to having some precision when you go out and align your mount. So you might need to be a little bit more careful when you're doing something like this uh, publicly. So practicing that. And you want to 
obviously get this done quickly as well because usually you've probably got maybe someone's doing a talk or a presentation about what they're going to see for the night not a bad idea um and while you're while they're doing that you have about 30 minutes to 45 minutes to get that set up ready to go so there's that um so you want to get used to the flow of setting up your equipment somewhat quickly and being able to align that accurately enough to take 30 seconds to 60 second exposures though um with your setup in time for it to be dark and get going but equatorial mounts are going to give you the ability to use lower systems um they're going to be able to give you a, a wide set of uh, telescopes that you can use or multiple telescopes at that point and give you longer uh, exposure capability uh the telescope anything obviously is going to work nowadays cameras are super sensitive uh faster optics are going to cut down the exposure time quite a bit so if you do have a hyperstar or something like that or a rasa or whatever is floating around um that's something that can work really well but honestly any optic is going to work especially with the cameras nowadays. Um, I like using refractors. Well, first off, Skywatcher sells refractors. I promote our stuff. But more importantly, um, refractors are not going to have, they're just faster. So when you're in the field and you're setting up and you're limited on the time that you need to get your camera focused, your mount aligned, balanced, polar aligned, you've got a lot of stuff to do that may, and make sure that's working. There's a lot more steps involved with making sure a live stack system is ready to go for a field presentation than just, hey, I balanced my mount, put my eyepiece in it, and we're ready to go. The precision it takes uh, for something for this to work is a step above just a basic visual setup, so it's going to take some more time. Um, collimation, though quick, is just one more thing I've got to worry about when I've got some kind of reflecting telescope. A lot of stuff's going to hold collimation pretty well. It's just another step. Um, obviously, with a good collimator, uh, you could probably do that before it even gets dark, but it's just something else you have to pay attention to. So a refractor is honestly faster. At least for me, it's faster. Um, easier to balance. I like, actually, I should have had it here, on all of my draw tubes on the focusers, Another reason I'm not a huge fan of using Schmidt Cassegrains for stuff like this, um, I like to mark everything with like glow tape or whatever. So on my draw tubes for my refractors, um, I have a little piece of glow tape where the camera comes to focus. So that way, when I'm set up, I can put the balance the mount, polar align it, got my optical tube on there, got my camera on it, and I have a rough marker on the draw tube. Um, so here's one of our Esprit refractors. So they have markers, little measurement markers on the draw tubes. So what I like to do is I like to find out, you know, roughly where my focus is and then mark that with a little piece of glow tape or something on the draw tube. So when I pull this out of the bag, I can just rack this out and be like, oh, I come to focus right about there. And then I know I'm roughly in focus and I'm ready to go. That makes the alignment process go faster because I'm not having to find a star, make sure it's focused. At least you're close. You're close enough to get 
the ball rolling on there. So that's a, something I like to do. That's why I'm not a big fan of using Schmidt Cassegrains because I can't see where the mirror is focusing. So you're kind of just a guessing game. You could use a Bantanoff mask to get focus faster. Um, there's ways around it. It's just for me, this is what I found to work. So you do what works for you. I find that optics between F7 and F2 um, with a modern camera, you know, something really sensitive. A lot of the ZWOs, QHYs, you know, some of the older CCDs do a very nice job. Um, I have friends who are using F10 Schmitz as well for live stacking. Um, it's just the longer the focal length, longer the exposure is going to be, the more precise the mount has to track. So I like... I think something about a thousand millimeters um, right about there is kind of the sweet spot because you're getting an, a good image scale um, to make things large enough, even the small objects. Um, with a lot of the modern day cameras being multiple megapixels at that 800 to a thousand millimeter focal length, you've got enough focal length to blow up like a galaxy cluster and make it look kind of cool. Um, and if you're using a large sensor, like a, a four thirds or a APS-C or a full frame, um, then you've got a much wider field of view. Um, so something between F7 and F2, um, that's a covers a pretty wide range of stuff, works really well. Uh, my two telescopes that I use are 550 millimeter focal length and a thousand millimeters. And then I've got our focal reducers to drop the, I primarily use the Esprit 150 six inch refractor. Um, a lot of times I'll just run it at F7. That's what I really started messing with. Um, actually I started with one of our Quattros, the eight inch F4 Quattro, 800 millimeter focal length at F4. Awesome setup. Worked very well. F4 optics. Um, the collimation was one thing you had to worry about. If you had a good laser collimator, it wasn't a big a deal. But it worked really well. It did the proof of concept. And then as I refined my setup, that's where I switched to the refractors. Um, but I always thought F7 was going to be too slow. It's not. Uh, many of the modern cameras nowadays do a very nice job. And of course, you can get some reducers to speed it up if you want to go faster. Um, let me make sure... Okay. Uh, Mike wants to use a 15-inch daub for live stacking. Um that would be awesome. Uh, it should work as long as you've got a tracking platform. And as long as it's tracking for a few minutes, it should go just fine. Uh, next question. Can a high frame rate short exposure camera overcome that? The stacks would not have as much data. And image quality. Um, we'll get to the, We're about to get into cameras. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so it just depends on what you want to do. But live stacking works really well. Here's an example of live stacking. This is with a C14 in a Hyperstar. Um, this is with a ZWO6200. That's a full frame, one shot color, crazy sensitive sensor. Um, but a lot of people nowadays are using something like this, um, like the ZWO2600. There's the 533 that's out. Uh, and then the QHY variants. Uh, I started using, uh, we'll get to cameras in a minute. But anyway, this is five 60 second exposures. I had a light pollution filter in there, uh, which I would recommend if you're in, in town. But that's five 60 second exposures. That's the horse head in color. So 
that's easy to obtain um, for that. Uh, this is another one. This is with the Esprit 150 and the Starlight Express 694, which is a phenomenal camera. Um, it's not as sensitive as some of the really new sensors, like whatever ZW... I don't remember the, what the actual sensor is in the ZWO 2600, um, but the 6200, the IMX 455 from Sony, that sensor is nuts. Crazy sensitive sensor. Um, the 2600 is the little brother to that, and then, um, but we'll get into that. But this is the advantage. This is in town. I think there was even a moon up. Uh, with that monochrome camera and an H-alpha filter, and only a few stacked images, you're looking at the pillars of creation and M16 and being able to show people that without much effort at all. It, a lot of stuff is actually on the table, even if you're in a light-polluted location. Um, M51, this is through the 6-inch refractor as well. You know, getting a view like that of M51 where you can see the arc between the two galaxies and the dust around the, the companion, that's like a 30-inch telescope in a dark sky. Like, that is some serious aperture to see that visually, plus having ideal conditions. This was taken in town with a 6-inch telescope and a small little camera, and not a lot of effort. So... But the fact that we're able to see that is crazy. Um, here's Orion. Orion's a, a walk in the park. Um, but with hydrogen alpha filters, you can easily cut through the light pollution, a lot of the detail in there. Um, but, you know, I understand the stars aren't on this, are not perfect. They're, maybe they're a little bit of out of, maybe they're a little out of focus. Maybe there's a little bit of streaking because, you know, we're trying to get this aligned well enough, but... You know, there's going to be a little bit of streaking. Um, these are not big, processed, sexy images to send into APOD. And that's one thing I would like to mention when you are doing live stacking. You're not there to take pictures for yourself. Um, you're there to share this with other people. So it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, it just has to look good. Because... Obviously, there's a lot more effort that's going to go into you taking this big grand color image to share with your friends or Instagram and whatever that looks real nice and polished. That's great. You're in a different mindset when you're doing that, and your equipment has to be ready to do that. But this application, it's kind of just down and dirty astrophotography. So we're just doing the basics uh, for that. Yes, we could live stack M33. Uh, we've done it. It's awesome. Uh, cameras. So the big thing with cameras is sensitivity. Um, when you're looking at specifications of a camera, you want to look for high QE cameras or quantum efficiency if you're not super familiar with that. Um, I like cameras that are 70% QE or better. A lot of the modern day ones are in the 80s and 90s, which crazy um i started out with a starlight express uh, i don't think starlight express ultra star this little tiny camera the sensor's not that big um it's basically their best guide camera that they make from starlight express 
but this is what I started with. It's the monochrome version. Well, this is the, yeah, monochrome version. I like monochrome cameras because of the increased sensitivity. And I like being able to show people structures rather than the color. Uh, I just like doing that better. Uh, but this little guy works so incredibly well because it does have a Sony sensor. Um, it's not the biggest sensor in the world, but it's very, it is very sensitive. It has a very high QE. And what I liked about this camera is A, it's lightweight and B, it's powered off of one USB cable. There's no cooler on it. So you'd have to worry about that, but I never found it to be a big deal, but it's very simplistic being one USB to run the whole thing. So that's what I started with and it works incredibly well um actually the moon image i believe shown here was shot with the ultra star um but i this is what i started with i still like this camera a lot because of its ease of use and having one clean usb and not having all this other stuff involved um it's just an inch and a quarter housing pop it in there you're good to go um I don't use the ultra star much anymore. We've kind of upgraded to bigger sensors um, at that point right now. I use the starlight six, nine, four. Uh, I like that camera a lot. Uh, very sensitive, little bit bigger sensor than the ultra star. It does have cooling on it. Uh, and then of course we have the ZWO 2600 or I'm sorry, 6200 full frame, which is a beast of a camera. For astrophotography but it works out to be a, a very impressive live stacking camera um, but any modern camera is gonna work um, about that uh, monochrome versus color it's kind of personal preference especially nowadays with the filters and such um, monochrome cameras are gonna give you that increased signal generally you can bin with them but a lot of modern uh, CMOS color cameras have binning capability now um, the color is going to give you that your image. So it's going to be more of a showcase thing for when you're out with the, the public. They You can show them the color, which is kind of neat. Um, I find light pollution becomes more apparent with a color camera because you're going to get that yellowish tone in the image. But um, yeah, so... I, that's why I kind of like working with monochrome cameras because I don't have that annoyance of having color uh, shades come into the image. I don't have to explain why this is a yellow tint and why this is that. It's just we're focusing on the structure itself. Uh, chip size doesn't really matter. It just is going to give you a wider field of view. So if you're using a big sensor like a crop sensor or a full frame sensor, you're just getting a bigger field of view. Um Binning two by two is a major help because it's just going to help reduce the amount of time your exposure is going to need. My typical exposure times are 30 to 60 seconds and it's just on a repetitive stack. So that's going to work. Now, I know people are asking about like the revolution imagers and planetary cameras. Um, I'll start with the planetary cameras. Planetary cameras... Some of them can do long exposure work. They're going to be very similar to like an ultra star. They'll probably do an acceptable image. Uh, they don't really have any of the tech cooling like the bigger cameras do, uh, where you can actually cool the sensor down to reduce noise, which is really only an advantage if it's hot outside. I find in the winter time, 
it's not as big of a deal because it's generally cold enough uh, to where you don't have a lot of inherent noise in the image. And a lot of these modern sensors are very clean when it comes to noise in the image. Um, so a planetary camera will probably do okay. You want to experiment with it. Uh, a lot of it's going to come down to the software control of it, which we'll get to in a minute. So I think you'd have to experiment with it, but it's something you could try out. Um, I have done it with uh, an old imaging source camera, which is kind of neat, um, but you'd have to mess with it. As long as it can do like a 30 second exposure, you should be okay. And then as long as it just works with a software that can tell it to keep taking pictures and live stacking, it should do okay. I don't think uh, DSLR or mirrorless cameras are a great option because you have the shutter and they, they've got a they've got a lot of filters inside of them and stuff. So you'd have to experiment with something like that. I would probably choose something more of a dedicated camera. Uh, the revolution imagers uh, and stuff like that. Those are, they're nice cameras. Uh, I think they're a good way to get started. Their sensors are not that big, but they, they are sensitive. They do a nice job. Um, I find the bigger, higher resolution cameras just give a cleaner image overall. Um, but the Revolution imagers do a nice job. Um, I've got a couple friends who have the Revolution imagers. Um, they are definitely a good way to get going on a lot of this. They're not super expensive. They've got a nice little screen and a battery. It's a very clean setup. Uh, that's where I would probably say if you don't have a camera at all and you want to kind of get started with it, maybe invest in a Revolution imager to get started, see what you think about it. And if you find yourself really enjoying it and you want to kind of upgrade to a like a higher resolution camera to kind of up the image quality a bit, um, then go to like a full dedicated imaging camera in a, a live stack software. So there's not really a bad way to go about it. It's just kind of the quality of the images that you're going to get out of it. Um, I do have some friends locally who use those kind of cameras where they kind of, they're kind of the older CT cameras um, and they produce a nice display image. You can see the colors, you can get some detail out of it. It's a little pixely um, for my tastes, uh, but it's just, I've kind of switched up to the bigger cameras. The bigger cameras, you can kind of adjust, you have more control, they're easier to do from the controllers on the computers. So they're a good way to get started, but Eventually, you'll probably upgrade to something higher resolution at that point. But they're not bad cameras at all. So. Software. Uh, software is the key. This is what does everything. So this is what's going to be able to do all that stacking for you. This is the brain of the entire process. So many modern programs now have live stack uh, capabilities in them. Uh, the ZW ASI Air, I believe, has it, which is a very clean way of doing it because it's also a computer that can run a lot of the other stuff on board um, as well. The only thing I'm not 100% sure on, um, we have a ZW ASI Air, and it doesn't have an HDMI cable on it. So you'd have to stream that to, like, a big uh, iPad or a tablet or something like that. Uh SkyX from Software Bisque, that's what I use. A lot of times I'm using 
get to control the mount as well and helping with alignment. Uh, that has the capability to live stack as well. Um, you can also implement darks and flats into it. It does a very nice job. So anytime I'm doing a live stack session, it is with that. Um, I like it because it controls everything under one under one window. Um, controls the mount. If I have an autofocuser, which I don't really recommend for live stack stuff, just manually focus it. It goes faster. Um, maybe you have a filter wheel on board. Uh, I actually got rid of my filter wheels. I just use like a Star Arizona filter slider. Uh, it just is a faster thing and it's one less cable I have to worry about. So it just streamlines the whole setup there. Um, but I am a fan of using filters. I think it's a must. Um, another reason I like using monochrome cameras is because if I'm actually doing a presentation and we're talking about the science of it, I can switch from visible light to H alpha to O3 to S2 filters. And I can teach people about the different types of wavelengths, uh, when we're on an object. So maybe we're doing M16. It's like, here's what that looks like in hydrogen. Here's what it looks like in oxygen. Here's what it looks like in sulfur. We can explain why we use narrow band on a professional level to understand what's going on inside of an object. So it's kind of fun to flip those filters around and you can kind of do, you know, talk about chemistry and spectroscopy and all kinds of stuff using those filters. And it's easier to do that with a monochrome camera because you can isolate those wavelengths. Um, you can still do that with a color camera, but you don't have that sensitivity uh, there. And if you want to go learn about that, we've done a whole episode on monochrome versus color cameras a couple weeks ago. You can go learn about that. So I like using SkyX because it controls my entire system as well as do doing the live stack. Uh, SharpCap, I've got a lot of friends who use SharpCap. Um, I haven't played with SharpCap personally. Uh, I think Lowell Observatory uses it. Um, and I think McDonald Observatory was using that too. So, but they do a really nice job. All of those do well. I'm sure there's other softwares out there that also do live stack. These are aware of, so do with it with you will on that. But ultimately live stacking is an awesome way to just go out and observe whether you're on your own or to show people stuff. Um, Honestly, any telescope that can focus light is going to work. Uh, ultimately, cliff notes here. I'd recommend something between F7 and F2, uh, kind of a wide region there. That would work. I do like refractors because I think they're easier to set up in the field, and it's one less thing to worry about. Having some focal reducers on hand can definitely help speed things up, give you a wider field view. Um, monochrome versus color cameras pick uh i like having monochrome because it gives me more control over the final uh what we're able to show people um but color is a beautiful way of doing it too uh so but yeah so, uh mike uh sky x has a hundred dollar a year if you want to keep it updated um if you don't really care about that and the current build that you have is stable and you don't need anything in the future, you don't have to pay the $100 fee every year. You can just let that subscription go away um, and just use it. I've used the same copy of SkyX for a while. It's a stable build. It has live stack. There's not really. So um, that's just personal experience on that. So speaking of SkyX, 
Uh, next week is our special guest, Steve Bisk from Software Bisk. They are the creators of Sky X. They also make the Software Bisk uh, Paramounts. Um, so we'll have him on next week to talk about Bisk and all their fun stuff there. Uh, if you have any questions, um, definitely write in right now. We're about finished with it. Um, uh, but I do thank everyone for being here. Uh, this was a good episode. I definitely recommend going out and playing with it. This is a very cool way to showcase uh, different things in the nighttime sky. It's a lot more beneficial than calling out a big old telescope. I love showing people stuff through a big old telescope, but um, what you're able to do with a small 80 millimeter refractor, a basic go-to mount and a camera is light years ahead of what you're going to be able to show someone in a 30 inch telescope. But those experiences are very different. So I wouldn't say one is better than the other. It's just different. Um, but it just kind of comes down to what exactly you want to get out of it, what you want to show people. Uh, but I find people appreciate both sides of it. Um, a lot of times I will bring out a video or a, a live stack setup when I know there's going to be other astronomers out there um, on the field doing visual. So it's just kind of representing the astrophotography side of things and showing people how that works. Um, can you comment on the unistellar or EV scope as a public outreach solution? There's not, there's none of these setup time involved. I haven't played with any of the, the unistellars or EV scopes. I'd be curious to get my hand on one. Um, they're interesting. It's basically the same thing that we're doing, uh, here. I generally stream onto a 32 inch, you know, monitor um so more people can see a lot of the ev scopes uh one of them has like an eyepiece in it to where you actually look onto a screen so it's kind of a mix of it is live stacking but you have to look through an eyepiece kind of experience so that's kind of an interesting way of going about it another one i believe live stacks onto a tablet maybe there's a way to stream onto it um they're they're just a different way of approaching it um, it, they're not bad. They're just a different way of approaching it. What I like doing is I like projecting it onto a big monitor. Um, FYI, if you are doing this, that monitor is going to throw a lot of light out. Um, so if you're going to be doing this, I would recommend set If you're going to have people near you who are going to be like, that's too much light. You're worrying about, you're destroying my image. Stay away from those people. Um, go set up on the other side of the field. If you have to, maybe set up a little pop-up tent and block all of that. Uh, but it is going to add a lot of extra light to the field. So be prepared when you have a big monitor out there. But the advantages, I think, of having a big monitor are rather than having one person at the eyepiece at any given time, you can now have 10 people, 15 people sitting around the telescope and you can kind of explain that to them. And I also have people ask, you know, well, what happens when you want to do longer exposures? You know, sometimes I will do exposures that are 60 seconds or even up to two minutes if we're going after something really obscure. What I find is I can tell people ahead of time, like, here's what we're going to see. 
here's what you can expect to see. Here's the details of that object and why it's cool and why we have to take a longer exposure. I know many of us can chew up 60 minutes, 60 to, any of us could chew up a minute or two talking about astronomy. And it's a good idea to practice your observing list at home to make sure you can actually see the object you're gonna show people. I can't tell you how many times I've actually like, hey, let's look at this. Nothing shows up because sometimes it just isn't gonna work. So practice your observing list at home, make sure it's something you can see, but give it, sit there, take the opportunity to sit there and explain what people are gonna see because it actually builds up the energy. People get really excited when it's like, oh, by the way, we're gonna see M51. It's a face on spiral galaxy that's like 35 million light years away. It's gonna look like this big, you know, spiral whirlpool. It'll look amazing and people get excited waiting for that image to come up and then it pops up on the screen and you have a big group of people go, whoa. So yeah, that gives you some time to kind of explain your object and it it makes it more exciting and fun. Um, and then if you've got a group of people floating around, because rather than having a small like nine inch iPad or something like that, you've got a 40 inch display. Hey, we're finished with the object on the screen right now. We're about to go to another object. What would you guys like to see? Most people aren't going to have any freaking idea what they want to see, but they'll know, oh, can we see a cluster? Oh, can we see a galaxy? Or, oh, can we see a nebula? And you'll have your observing list that you've practiced at home. You know what's kind of achievable in your mental catalog. And then pick a nebula or whatever they like. I want to see a cluster. Pick a cluster out of that list that you know works and and the telescope over there and explain all about that. But ultimately in the day and age that we're in, we're trying to adapt back to being around people. We're still not out of this whole pandemic thing. The whole live stacking outreach thing is a awesome tool to have as an outreach uh, representative. It allows you to reach a lot of people one go you're able to see fainter objects, display things in color, and it it allows technology that has been around in the astrophotography world to now be applied to outreach and education. We're now using that technology capability to advance and show people what you can do with amateur level equipment. And everybody nowadays wants to take pictures. So showing people how we do it, explaining how to do it, and making that obtainable will hopefully get more people into the hobby long run. So this is just another tool to have in the tool case um, as an outreach uh, rep. So go out there and do it. One last thing, you're gonna need power. So that is one of the big caveats I have when you're doing this is I need to have either A, a generator, B, a bunch of big batteries, or C, an AC plug somewhere to plug everything in. That is the one major caveat to this. So if I'm going to go do an event, make sure that you know how you're going to be able to run power from your to your system because you're running a computer you're running the mount, whatever. It's just something you need to think of. So that's pretty much it. Hope you guys have had a good day today. Um, go out, enjoy the weekend, be safe. And next Friday, we're going to have Steve Bisk from Software Bisk on. It should be a lot of fun. 
And then good luck. If you have any further questions on live stacking, go ahead and email us at info at skywatcherusa.com. We'd be happy to answer any questions. And other than that, clear skies, everyone, and have a great weekend. Take care.